Well, I get the privilege to introduce, uh, if you were not here for the Renew Conference, uh, the Reverend Dr. Abraham Cho uh, blessed us Friday and Saturday uh, and excited for you to get to be blessed as God speaks his word through him this morning. Uh, Abe was uh, the senior pastor of Redeemer New York's Upper East Side a congregation for six years uh, and uh, is now uh, a, a pastoral uh, staff at Redeemer East Harlem, and the, he is the senior tr uh, training director for City to City uh, for the whole of North America. Uh, and uh, more, more than what he does, uh, he is a father, uh, a husband, four kids from the age of 17 to nine. Uh, he is a man who I've just been around for this weekend who uh, is uh, contagious because he loves Jesus and he's gripped and captivated uh, by the really real kingdom of God that's more true than anything we can see. And, and so I, I think you're going to be blessed by him preaching the word this morning, and I want you to give him a, a warm welcome as he comes to preach. Thanks so much. Well, I really appreciate the welcome that I've gotten all weekend um, from Christ Central. You even rolled out the New York City weather today for me, which is pretty incredible. Um, I feel right at home. Uh, it's really a pleasure for me to be here with you, and it's been a wonderful weekend. Um, and yesterday I had the chance to eat both Carolina barbecue and Korean barbecue. And I'm about to start a fight at church today. I think the Korean barbecue was better. <laughs> but it's been wonderful, and I really do pray that God will continue to move in this congregation as it already has uh, to represent the justice and the mercy of God uh, right here to our neighbors in Durham. So really grateful to be a part of that. <clears throat> uh, today's scripture reading is going to be from Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, a uh, very familiar passage, I think, for many. So would you please stand at, uh, for the reading of God's word? And as we read, may uh, the Spirit grant you ears to hear and eyes to see uh, his word. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is God's word. Would you join me in prayer? By your grace, by your spirit, would you open up our hearts that the words that we hear today would be the words of life, that we'd receive uh, the very words of God, the same word that the psalmist says, strips the cedars bare, twists the oaks. We pray that that word would have power over our hearts by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. <clears throat> One of the things that we see throughout the Bible is that when something happens and it leaves the people of God genuinely disoriented, God doesn't always make everything immediately clear to them, but their theology does get very simple. Let me give you an example of what I mean. You might remember when Jesus was preaching to the crowds and crowds are starting to gather and he's gaining in popularity and he decides in one of those uh, sermons to tell the people that if you want to follow after me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And most of the crowd said, not signing on for that. 
And the disciples say, what does this mean? This teaching is very difficult. And Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, will you also leave? And do you remember the response of the disciples? They say very simply, where would we go? For you have the words of life. Not everything became clear to them in that moment about what Jesus meant by those words. But their theology got very simple. Or there's another time in the book of Acts where the early Christian movement, was, which was largely a Jewish renewal movement, started to see all these Gentiles, these Greeks, Greeks coming to Israel's Messiah in faith. And the early controversy was the question, what do we do with all these Gentiles, these Greeks coming to our Messiah in faith? The question was, do these Gentiles need to leave their culture behind to take on the culture of a Jew, to become a Jew first in order to become a Christian? And there were different factions and lots of disagreements. And in the end, there was a lot of confusion. Not everything became clear immediately at the time. But do you remember what the Apostle Peter said in that moment? He said, God has given them the spirit as well. And if God has received them, who are we to reject? Not everything became clear. A lot of theology to sort through there. But their theology did become simple. If anything, the moments that we are living in today surely qualify as disorienting times. Coming out of a pandemic experiencing the very extreme uh, political polarization and differences, uh, seeing the ways that racial justice has never really been addressed in many of our societies, even the, uncovery, uh, re- the uncovering of the reality of both spiritual and other kinds of abuse within the church. The Me Too movement becomes a Church Too movement. And in the midst of all those things, there are many, and many of you maybe even here today, aren't quite sure what to do with your faith now. People call it deconstructing. That as you look at these realities, you say, I don't know what to believe. I don't know how I feel about these things. It's a disorienting time. And I think because of that, it's my heart to help the church for our theology to get simple. That maybe never more than now, I think there's a strong need for the church to simply return to the Jesus that we meet in the Gospels. And that if you're here and you're not sure what you believe or you're not sure what you believe anymore, can I ask you, can you set aside some of the very important issues that you're wrestling with? And can you come back to Jesus? Who is this Jesus that transformed the world? Can you meet him again? Can you wrestle with the questions of who he is? So that's what I want to do this morning for us. Uh, I want to look at four different headings as we work through the short passes. First, I want to look at the invitation of Jesus to you, to us today. Secondly, I want to reflect a little bit on who it is that Jesus invites. Uh, Thirdly, I want us to reflect on the response of the disciples. And then lastly, I want to show you where you'll get the power to follow him. Okay. So let's start with the invitation of Jesus. We see this in verse uh, 18 and 19, Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, sees two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And here's the invitation. He said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. A very simple sentence, isn't it? But what I want to draw our attention to is that it's important that Jesus says to his disciples, follow me. 
He doesn't say, follow my teachings. He doesn't say, adopt my ideology. He doesn't say, subscribe to my doctrines. He doesn't say, live by my moral philosophy. He says simply, follow me. A living, breathing, acting, deciding, working person. And he says, come follow me. Now, what does that mean for us? A couple of things I want us to reflect on. I think on the first hand, to follow a living, breathing person today is an invitation first and foremost into adventure. That Jesus today does things and decides things without consulting you first. That Jesus acts in the world today and acts in his time without asking for your permission. That Jesus is a wild and true and living Savior. And to follow Jesus is to follow him into an adventure. It was always very curious to me and I've always wondered, how is it that going to church and becoming a Christian became the equivalent of settling down in life? That the invitation to follow Jesus is the invitation into an adventure of following a wild and free and working and deciding Savior and King. What would it look like if you were to recover the adventure of following Jesus. But that invitation also means a second thing. It's also, I believe, an inv invitation into intimacy. So the reason why Jesus calls you to follow him right now is because he really wants to be with you. That he loves to be near to you. I love Mark's version of a chapter that's similar to this where Jesus is calling all of his disciples to himself. And Mark in his text says this. He says that Jesus called to him those whom he desired. It's just the ones that he wanted. And he appointed the 12. Why? So that they might be with him. And then only after that to be sent out to preach. That Jesus calls you to be with him simply because he desires to be with you. My kids, when they were younger, would want to go wherever I went. Less so now. It's a little bit sad. Would want to go just wherever I went just because they wanted to be near to dad. And so if I was going on a Saturday morning to our local pharmacy, CVS, they would say, oh, dad, can we come with you? Not because they have a particular interest in prescription drugs but simply because they knew if I would go with dad, I'll be near to him. And they would scurry along the streets of our neighborhood, follow me to our local pharmacy. And now as they've gotten older, it's more me saying, dad, them saying, dad, can I go to the movies? I'm like, oh yeah, can I go with you? No, it's okay, you're good. But when Jesus says, follow me, he says, follow me, not because you're useful to him, not because you're competent or capable, not because you have something to offer to him, not because there's a utilitarian value that you bring to the table. When Jesus says, come and follow me, he asks you to follow him just because he wants to be with you. Do you believe that? Is that what your relationship with Jesus feels like? So it's an invitation to adventure. It's an invitation to intimacy. But it's also, thirdly, an invitation to apprenticeship. He wants you to become like him. I would love to see the church recover the metaphor of apprenticeship 
to describe Christian discipleship or the Christian life. Because to apprentice is to draw yourself so close to a master and to learn all the details of the master's life so that the skill of the master is being reproduced in the hands of the disciple. That to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, is to apprentice your whole life to Jesus. To say, I want to be near to you. I want your your life to be formed within me. The life of the master formed in the life of the apprentice. Uh, One of my favorite documentaries is a little bit older now, but it's one that I think you can still find on Netflix. It's a documentary called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And it's basically a documentary that just chronicles the life of a man named Jiro who is known in Tokyo as the greatest sushi chef, which is a very hard phrase to say. The greatest sushi chef in all of Tokyo. Uh, he owns a little sushi shop, also very difficult to say, uh, in one of the um, subway stations in Tokyo. It's a 10 seat sushi shop in a subway station. And he's a man, he's probably 85, maybe close to, close to 90. He's given his entire life to master the art of creating the perfect uh, piece of sushi. And what I find fascinating about about that documentary is that there are a group of three or four younger men who have apprenticed their entire lives to the master because they want the skill and the life of the master to be reproduced in their own life, into their own hands. And so they wake up at the same time as the master. They make sure that they're there before Jiro arrives. Their entire lives are given over to Jiro to adopt this skill. And what I love about the documentary is that these are grown men who have for decades given their lives to doing very simple things. So there's one of them who for 10 years he's been working with Jiro and yet has never once touched the piece of fish. His whole job was to ensure that the towels that the guest receives when they enter are at the perfect temperature for them to wipe their hands. 10 years, 365 days given his life for that. There's another one whose job is to make sure that the rice on which the sushi will be placed uh, is presented at exactly body temperature, not room temperature. Apparently body temperature is the exact temperature for the rice in order to draw out the flavors of the fish. That's all he does. Make sure the rice is body temperature. Or my favorite is there's a third man who works with him whose entire job for decades has been to massage the octopus for 45 minutes, not 47, not 42, for 45 minutes to massage the octopus so that by the time it lands on top of the rice, it's at the perfect consistency and tenderness. Grown men giving their entire lives to the way of the master because they desire the skill of the master to be reproduced in them. The Christian life is to apprentice our entire life to the master so that his life might be reproduced in ours, to draw near. And when Jesus says, come follow me, he's inviting you to apprentice your entire life to the way of the master. There's an old rabbinic blessing that says this. It's a beautiful little blessing. It says, may you ever be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And the image there is that as a disciple, you would be so eagerly tagging along the heels of your rabbi 
That no matter where the rabbi goes, no matter what turns, no matter what places he takes, that no matter where he goes, you're so eagerly on the heels of your rabbi that the dust kicked up from his sandals covers your whole body. What would change in the church in America today if every Christian was known for being covered in the dust of our rabbi? How would things be different? How would Durham be different? How would your neighborhood be different? May you ever be covered in the dust of your rabbi. When Jesus asks you to follow him, he's asking you to apprentice your entire life, not just your weekend life, not just your spiritual life, not just your afterlife, to apprentice your whole life to his. So the missionary and theologian Leslie Manubigan said this. He says, the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. Let me read that again. The deepest motive for being on mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is. Where is Jesus going to be? He's going to be on the frontier between the reign of God and this usurped dominion of the devil. He's saying if you want to be close to Jesus, the best way to do that is be near to him on mission. And so that's his invitation to you and to me this morning. Come, follow me. Follow me into adventure. Follow me into intimacy. Follow me into apprenticeship. A living, breathing, acting, wild, untamable person. Secondly, I want to draw your attention to who it is that Jesus invites here. In verse 18, we see that it's Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And if you look in verse uh, 21, we see that it's James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Here's what's interesting. Rabbis, during Jesus' time, never went out to search for students. Uh, students and their families, if anything, would, would be jockeying for position at the opportunity to be selected to study with a particular rabbi. To be chosen to study with a rabbi would change the entire direction of your life. And so students would come and try to kind of show their resume why I would be a worthy disciple. But Jesus, even though he's a rabbi with a growing reputation, doesn't look for his disciples that way. Instead, Jesus goes out and searches for those who will follow him. And where does Jesus go? Did you notice that in this passage? Where does he go to look for his disciples? He doesn't go to the synagogues. He doesn't go to the universities. He doesn't go to the halls of power. He doesn't go to the educated. He doesn't go to the influential. When Jesus decides, I'm going to look for those who will follow me, where does he go? He goes to the docks. He goes to the seaside fish market. He goes to the margins, the poor and the working class. He goes to those that everyone else in society had probably written off. He goes to those who have been forgotten and overlooked. He goes not to the self-important. He goes to those who are oftentimes self-doubting. Does that describe you today? Did you know Jesus goes to you just like you to find his own disciples? And I love imagining this scene I love imagining Jesus waking up in the morning, going to the shore. I love imagining him picking through the seaside market. Imagine all the sights and the sounds, all the smells, 
the bustle, probably bumping up against shoulders, against people who are looking to buy what they need to buy. And imagine Jesus kind of picking his way through the seaside market and finally coming to Simon and Andrew. And I imagine him a little bit breathless. And he says, Simon, Andrew, I've been looking everywhere for you. And I finally found you. Simon, Andrew, I could literally pick anybody in the universe to be my disciples, but I've looked everywhere, up and down. I've looked everywhere, and now I finally found you, and I'm choosing you. And you can imagine what Peter and Andrew must have thought. Hands with gloves on them, smelling like fish. Fish guts probably splayed all over the front of their aprons. And them saying, you mean me? And when Jesus comes to you today, do you hear him saying that to you right now? And I'm choosing not because you're influential or competent, not because you are important. I'm choosing you simply because I'm choosing you. I've decided to set my love upon you. I've looked everywhere. I could literally choose anyone. And I'm choosing to set my love on you. And yeah, I know about the fish guts. I know about the self-doubt. I know about the fear, the anxiety. I know every bitter deed, every spitter thought, every sinful deed. I know the self-pity, the resentment, the pride. I, I, I know all of it. And I actually know it's worse than you're admitting to yourself. And I'm choosing you, simply because I'm choosing you, to join me on this adventure. And he wants to tell you this morning, do you know what will happen if you respond to this invitation of Jesus to come and follow him? You know what will happen? He tells us in verse 19, there's a promise where he says, if you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Now, I never fully appreciated what that phrase really meant. But in the Hebrew imagination, the sea, where all the fish are, the sea was the symbol of chaos and darkness and destruction. So think about the primordial waters of Genesis 1. Think about the flood of Noah, the Red Sea parting at the Exodus, Jonah plunged into the depths, the sea everywhere in the Bible in the Hebrew imagination was chaos, judgment, and death. And so do you hear what Jesus is saying when he says, I'll make you fisher of men? He's saying, if you come, follow me, I will fill you with such peace and hope and purpose that I'll make you into someone who can draw others out of their chaos and darkness and destruction and into my glorious light. That's his promise. That's what he says he'll make you into. And so will you follow him? Will you go where he goes? Will you be covered in the dust of this rabbi? Because the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is and the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. But third, I want to draw our attention to the response of the disciples because I think we have something to learn there as well. In verse 20, it very simply says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And in verse 22, the gospel writer Matthew, I think intentionally makes it almost identical. Immediately they left the boat and their father and they followed him. And the simplicity and the repetition of that, I think is the gospel writer Matthew trying to teach us something. 
That that first word, immediately, that there is a power and a beauty and a joy and a love to Jesus that elicits an immediate response. That if you've encountered Jesus in a saving way, if you've met the real and living Jesus, it draws out and immediately out of your life to know him, to follow him. That if you've seen Jesus for who he is, there's no other reasonable response to the beauty of this rabbi. But he says immediately, what do they do? The first thing they do is they leave their nets. Or in verse uh, 20, or the, the last verse, or 22, they leave the boat and their father and follow him. I love the visual of James and John literally leaving their father kind of creaking around in the boat in order to follow Jesus. Now, what does that represent, their nets? What does it mean to leave their nets behind? Well, the nets for these fishermen represented their very livelihood. It was a source of security. It was a source of comfort. It probably was even a source of identity because they came from fishing families, which means, that of course, they were going to be fishermen from the beginning. But everything that gave them a sense of who they are, a sense of belonging, everything that represented their livelihood, Jesus says you must lay down those nets and come and follow that to set down the nets means to say, I'm going to allow Jesus to radically reconfigure every single part of my life. I'm going to set aside everything that I drew a sense of my livelihood, security, and identity from. And I'm going to set those down. It's a radical demand, an absolute reconfiguration of your life. Because here's the thing, Jesus never says, I want to be added into your life. Would you include me? Jesus doesn't say, come, let me follow you into your life and help you achieve your goals. Jesus says, come, lay down your nets and follow me, a wild, living, breathing, purposing person. See, Jesus refuses to play the genie in your Aladdin story. He refuses to play the fairy godmother in your Cinderella story. He's asking you to leave the nets behind. Friends, this morning, would you ask yourself, what are the nets that I must lay down that I'm still clinging to for a sense of security or approval or belonging? What do you need to lay down? So immediately, they left their nets, and then what did they do? They followed him. I love, again, the simplicity of this. At this moment, these disciples couldn't possibly know what they were getting themselves into. And the truth of the matter is, if Jesus told them, here's what you're getting yourself into, they all would have said, I'm good. And stay here. They could have never known the adventure that Jesus was going to take them. But at this point, they didn't need to know. In the face of a lot of uncertainty and unknowns, what was enough was Jesus said, come follow me. And Jesus was enough. Because the greatest, the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. Friends, Jesus may be saying to you this morning, I know you're facing uncertainty and the unknown. And I've heard you praying to show me what I'm supposed to do. 
And maybe Jesus simply wants you to say, you know what, just follow me. I know it's uncertain. I know there's a lot unknown. But follow me. And that leads to the fourth and final point as we wrap here. Where do we get the power to follow Jesus like this? It's a radical call, isn't it? There's a part of me as a preacher, I want to apologize every time I, you know, kind of talk about this. It's a radical call to lay down your nets and follow Jesus. So how do we get the power to do this? Do you know another time when these same disciples early in the morning were back on the same exact shore? Do you know when that is? It's in John chapter 21. And a lot has happened between here and the very last chapter in the Gospel of John. Where Jesus has been arrested, he suffered, all the disciples fled, he was crucified, and he was buried. And Jesus in the grave, the disciples don't know what to do, they're lost. And so what did they do? They come right back here to the shores of their old life. John chapter 21 says that the disciples were on the, the shores of the Sea of Tiberias, which is really just the Roman name for the Sea of Galilee. They're back on these very shores, the shores of their old life. And you can imagine, can you imagine what they were feeling? I mean, at the one level, they, they looked at this man. They said, we left everything to follow him. We gave him three years of our lives. We wanted nothing more than just to be near to him, to be close to him to be with him wherever he went, and then the one moment where he needed us the most, we all fled and we abandoned him. And Peter denies him vehemently three times that I never even knew him. The guilt and the regret of all of that when they said, of course we would come follow you. But I also imagine that they're probably feeling pretty embarrassed and foolish They're back on the same shores. And they say, what did we just do with three years of our lives? How could we have been so dumb? How could he have been duped, so fooled by this person who clearly is a failed Messiah? And now we're back and we have to look at our neighbors in the eyes and explain what kind of fool were we scoffed at? Must have been utterly embarrassed. And so they're back mending these same nets But friends, you know what these disciples didn't know? That they're back on the shores of their old life. But what they didn't know was that Jesus had come back from the grave too. And Jesus was now back on these same shores. That just like at the beginning, early in the morning, Jesus picking through a seaside fish market, looking everywhere, saying, I've looked high and low, coming to Peter and Andrew and James and John, said, I've searched everywhere. I've been looking everywhere for you, breathless. And he came to say, I had to go to the one place where you couldn't follow me. I had to go into the judgment of God for your sin. I had to walk the road to Calvary, and if you tried to follow me into that death, it would have destroyed you. I walked to the one place where you couldn't follow me. I died your death. I was buried in your grave. I was laid to rest. But now I'm back, and you're forgiven. And all this change and a whole new world has come into being. And I'm come to here to tell you it is finished. 
And now, now there's no place I go that you cannot follow. And so he says, come and follow me. I'll fill you with my spirit. Come and follow me to the ends of the earth. Friends, have you seen Jesus doing that for you? Going the one place where you couldn't go to die your death. If you've seen that, then like the disciples, we'd say, of course. Just tell me where we're going. I'll be with you. So Christ Central Durham, I pray that your lives will be marked by staying near to this rabbi that his dust would cover you wherever you go in the city and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach your table, we see before our very senses what happened when you went to the place we couldn't follow you. Your body was crumbled, it was broken, it was torn apart. Your body made crumbs. And your blood was shed, poured out into the ground. And so, Lord, we come to this table because we know you've done the one thing we couldn't do. And we come to this table because we know by our own strength we can't follow you. But we come to your table to be strengthened so that we might know that this Jesus invites us into this adventure and that your spirit would strengthen us to go with you wherever you take us. So meet us now around your table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.